Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news podcast. Don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. This is part three of my discussion with Richard Kozel Wright, who's the director of the Division on Globalization and Development Strategies at UNCTAD, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. He's the author of the 2020 report of UNCTAD, Transforming Economies, Making Industrial Policy Work for Growth, Jobs, and Development. And you really should listen to part one and part two, because it will make a whole lot more sense if you do, but it will still make sense, I think, even if you don't. So before I really introduce and say hi to Richard, I'm going to read a, a quote from the report. So this is in a chapter almost everyone left behind. In a textbook world, income distribution is a well-rehearsed fiction. Wages are negotiated in markets where everyone has equal bargaining power, and the outcome is a wage reflecting each worker's productivity. Only in this narrow sense is income distribution fair. In the real hyper-globalized world of austerity and depressed employment, corporations wield unique power in wage negotiations, and the textbook foundations of fairness and distribution melt away. Even so, any rise in inequality from more liberalizations is justified assuming that the gains from improved allocation of resources, empowered middle-class consumers, and improved government revenues would be more than enough to compensate those at the bottom. That conclusion requires dubious assumptions like full employment everywhere and at all times. It also misses the point. Power and policies, not fair competition, determine how adjustment processes play out. So thanks for joining us, Richard. Uh, nice to be back, Paul. So break that down when you call the, this fair negotiations and they keep talking about a fair wage and sort it's almost like fair taxes uh the uh that it's a well-rehearsed fiction why do you call it so it's one of the great weaknesses of conventional economics its inability really to to deal with the distribution question in any serious way and to and to offer what is ultimately just a just a, a justification for the status quo i mean that's a long-standing you know debate and, and and critique of of most heterodox economists i think what is that Anyone who is outside of the kind of mainstream neoclassical tradition, you know, based on these ideas that the economic activity is, is simply a set of transactions between individuals who are fully rational and fully endowed with all the necessary information to make uh, optimal decisions and that as long as markets are left alone and not interfered with by, by, by governments, then prices will allocate resources in the most efficient way and everyone will be happy. I mean that any I mean, you know, anyone who kind of recognizes that as a as a kind of mythical view of of capitalist economies, I think is in one way or another heterodox, uh, you know, and it's a it's a broad group. Of, you know, it encompasses everybody from post Keynesians through uh, Austrians and Marxists, to be quite honest. But but it's a rejection of that very stylized view of optimal market behavior. Okay, well, keep breaking down then. So, explain what why that's a fiction and and how does it affect people? Uh, I mean, for the reasons we said in terms of in terms of the fact that you know. 
power if you if you if you take power out of the uh, out of the uh, out of the transactional relationship between you know buyers and and, and uh, you know consumers and producers between creditors and debtors and of course between labor and capital you're going to take out one of the most important elements of of, of those relationships uh, in our in our world I think what what we want to try I mean everyone recognizes that inequality has increased massively over the last three decades or four decades everywhere I mean it's not no one no one disputes that. I think there are different attempts to understand what, what why that's taken place. You know, the, amongst amongst many economies, it's a, a debate about whether trade or technological change has been the source of of these growing inequalities. Uh, and and behind that is this idea that I mean, trade and technology are good, but but somehow certain groups of people have been forgotten about or left behind is the kind of phrase that reverberates around our world to kind of explain uh, the, the the growing disparities uh, within and across countries, and 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 you know this idea that you know it's it's some somehow it's we've we forgot about people and all we need to do is just kind of give them a bit more education or train them a bit better and everything will be all right that we want to you know critique in our in in in, in the analysis that we've been doing now for some years and to to remind people really that inequality is hardwired into the rules of this hyper-globalized world of, of very footloose capital and increasingly flexible and precarious labor market conditions and policies that are oriented towards uh, 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 maintaining the, the place of those at the top of the pile. So, you know, it, it's not a kind of accident that we've seen this, it's the, the, these growing inequality. It's how the system works. It's how the system is intended to work. In you know the the rents that you know there's these very increasingly large semi-monopolistic or monopolistic corporations with a huge amount of economic political power in a position to generate rents for themselves. So rents rise to the top, wages are are kept down as as labour market institutions and and regulations are eviscerated. So uh, so wages stagnate and kind of desperation. You know the one thing that trickles down in that world is desperation essentially. And and so that that kind of under, that kind of recognition that it's the rules of the game and not and not kind of accident or forgetfulness that has created you know, the kinds of inequalities that we've seen. I think is is kind of central to the work that we're doing. And and desperation is very profitable. Uh, I know when I lived in Baltimore, I keep citing this example, but I think it's a good one. It's kind of typical of what was going on there. Uh, there's such high unemployment in Baltimore uh, that people were desperate for jobs. And so we talked to a guy at Johns Hopkins Hospital who was uh, had 14 years seniority, cleaned surgical rooms after uh, you know had to clean up the blood and guts, risking infection, had to take special drugs to try to avoid getting infected. And at the time we talked to the guy it was maybe two three years ago, he was making thirteen dollars an hour, and it's only possible to get such cheap labor if people are so desperate. And and you can look at that on a global scale, and then you talk about footloose capital, the fact that 
you know, big corporations can go where the labor's cheapest, play countries off against each other to some extent. To some extent, they need a China that has a disciplined work and trained workforce. But even there, they, the Chinese government for a long time was helping keep wages low, maybe a little less so now, but for a long time they were. Uh, and you have a situation where in your report, you talk about how the share of income that goes to profits has been going to uh, up and up in relationship to wages. But I think you make a very important point about the moment we're in, which is all of this existed pre-pandemic. But you write, if these pre-COVID-19 forces of wage repression remain in place, the labor share will likely continue its decline in many economies in the next years, exacerbating inequalities. In the United States, after a 50-year descent, the labor share is now back to its 1950s level. If current trends continue in 10 years' time, it will be back to the brink of the abyss level of 1930. And one should add to that, with this massive unemployment, there's no way wages are going up. The only way they're going is down. Yeah, I mean, in, in a way, it's, 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 there's even more to that story, particularly at the top. I think, you know, I think there's a tendency to, and particularly in our circles, to ignore the, 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 the nature of uh, economic power at the top of the, of, of the tree. And, 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 you know, a lot of those profit, that, a lot of that increased profit share goes to very large international corporations. I mean, you have a layer of much more, much smaller and more, and more precarious businesses uh, that, that, you know, do not benefit in the same way. But, you know, a huge, I mean, and, and you watch how these large firms operate. Not only are they in a position to cre- generate very large rents through intellectual property and control over brands and monopsony power and other, other mechanisms, but, of course, they're in a position to hide those profits from from governments so tax tax uh, uh, effective tax rates are extremely uh, low as a uh, as a consequence and and that forces governments into borrowing and and, and problems that emerge in, in in the balance sheets of of governments and and so you know not only do they hide the profits in you know tax havens most of which of course despite the fact that people have this image of tax havens as somehow being kind of caribbean islands with you know fancy guys in panama shirts parading uh, uh, on beaches but i mean most of the big tax havens in this world are are in the advanced economies but these companies are able to shift profits around these tax havens to to hide their profits and what do they do with their liquid resources they bear, they they don't invest in productive um, uh, uh, activities and and you know, investment and, and, and skills, they, they buy back their own shares, which has been taking place on a phenomenal scale since the, uh, since the end of the global financial crisis. I, the figure I saw that was, I think the, the S&P 500 companies have channeled a trillion dollars a year into share buybacks as part of their financing, you know, financing them themselves. And and interesting enough, accumulating almost the exact same amount of corporate debt, about a trillion dollars. Yeah, because it's more profitable to to borrow and and invest in financial assets than there is in in your own kind of productive activities because, you know, who are you going to sell this stuff to as as wages are are repressed, demand is kept low, and the the returns on investment in in those activities uh, become minimal. And and the best way to make money is to 
engage in short-term financial transactions of one kind or another. And, and these big corporations are sitting on piles of liquid asset that, you know, they, they, they use for those purposes. You write, a sustainable recovery requires faster wage growth for low-wage jobs, too, in order to revive productivity and employment growth. Wage repression and ever-weaker labor markets rule, labor market rules are only going to make the world economy's pre-existing conditions worse. And it's interesting, when, when they had this care legislation, which gave some, some money to people during the pandemic, which is far from over, and then and they're at, as we talk, they suppo- supposedly are going to start negotiating again a package in the Congress, although it looks like it's not really going to happen. But the Republicans, one of the things they're most concerned about is that some people were getting more uh, subsidy uh, than they were getting wages when they were working and, and how horrible that was, that people might get used to that kind of money and, and demand higher wages. Well, actually, that's precisely what, what is needed. But, but, but everything they do is, is in the other direction. They, they see such a direct connection that their profit, you know, pay higher wages, your profits are not as high. And, and same thing globally. And, and how they think a, a world, much of which is going to be devastated by the pandemic, is going to somehow also be a market for goods, unless the Americans just don't care about any market outside the United States. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, the b- bottom line is that it's simply not rational. This is where we, you know, we try and link in the notion. I mean, everyone's now talking about recovering better, right? Or building back better. Is, is that Biden's slogan? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Building back better. But yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, our solution to that is partly a, a kind of mac, an expansionary macroeconomic uh, agenda focused on full employment with an appropriate mix of monetary expansionary monetary policy, but very importantly, uh, a fiscal policy and public investment. Uh, but but that's not the end of the story, right? I mean, uh, clearly you need that's that you need if you're going to recover better. If we're not going to repeat the mistakes of the 2009 of post 2009 financial crisis, you know, we need this kind of New Deal. Uh, agenda, and at least my our reading of the new, of the old New Deal was that it was a combination of of first of all relief, then recovery, and then redistribution and regulation, particularly regulation of finance. And you know the redistribution was all about strengthening uh, 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 organized labor in one way or another, and building a middle class on the basis of this. You know, I listened to. Biden and in the debate and his inability to de- defend the idea of a Green New Deal is quite shocking because it was the old New Deal that precisely made the middle class great in America the first time around. And and this, the, the inability to kind of make that connection with the kinds of policies that we that are needed, uh, you know, post post COVID-19 was was pretty sad, really, I thought, you know, but that's that's the those are the kinds of that kind of combination of recovery and redistribution and re-regulation is 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 the heart of the of the alternative that we want to say is not only relevant in the United States or, or Western Europe but also in many developing countries too. The uh, reluctance of Biden to talk about a new deal in that way people try to say is because he doesn't want to alienate centrist voters and Republicans who might come over to the Democrats. And maybe there's a minor factor in that. 
But I think it's far more he doesn't want to alienate the financial sector because right now I think a, a good part of the financial sector, maybe even the majority, are okay with Biden being president. I, I think they would like to see a Republican Senate so they can control anything that actually gets done. But I think they realize Trump is enough of a madman that they'd rather have a more reliable neoliberal politician running running the state. But they that puts a lot of pressure on Biden not to talk about something that sounds too much like a new deal. I, I once asked uh, uh, Tom Ferguson, who's a political economist, uh, he knows a lot of the people in the finance sector, whether he what he thought, how they would react to a Bernie Sanders or Warren uh, versus fascism, if that was their choice, like Trumpian real authoritarianism or a Warren or a Sanders, uh, he said that they would choose authoritarianism if a wealth tax was on the table. Uh, that that to them is simply unacceptable. And and, and that's part of a, 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 an outlook and pressure that's on Biden for, for staying within the realm of what the financial sector uh, will accept, which I guess is also a reflection that that sort of a people's movement pushing from the other direction isn't strong enough right now. Yeah, I guess, and that's probably true. Not that's not you know exclusively a United States problem, I I guess. But I uh, you know I think and and that that rejection of the New Deal is obviously you know it, that this begins with Clinton, uh, if not not before. Um, but it, it, I mean, this, the sad thing, I mean, this uh, the point that we want to try and, and try and make is that, you know, those kinds of measures were the basis in which you got an expanding middle class. Uh, not, and, and in its and true of Western Europe, uh, although we didn't call it a new deal, but similar types of policies uh, that focused on full employment that, in which wages were in some way connected to productivity improvements because of the strength of organized labor, uh, because of that, firms were forced to kind of innovate and invest rather than channel their uh, profits into financial um, activities of one kind. I mean, you get this kind of virtuous circle in the 1950s without wanting to idealize it, but you get this kind of virtuous circle in the 1950s and 60s across advanced capitalist economies, which was the basis of a growing Middle class, you know, and 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 you know, that's, I mean, given the way in which we've seen the wage share uh, decline consistently over forty or fifty years, that underneath that, politically, sociologically, is this evisceration of the middle, the vanishing middle class. I think was the title of a uh, of a book by Peter Temin, and 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 that's what you've seen, and 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 you would have thought. A, progressive politicians would want to hold that up as an alternative to you know that 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 kind of uh, what what we've seen over the course of the last 30 or 40 years and the kind of anxieties and frustrations that that has that has bred well you you in your report say if they don't take the kind of approach you're suggesting. Uh, you call it a doomsday scenario. So in the next segment of our interview, we'll talk about your recommendations uh, for what you think should be done. And, and also, I'm going to raise the question, uh, shouldn't more public ownership be part of those recommendations? But we'll do that in, in uh, part four of our, our conversation. Uh, so thanks very much for joining us, Richard. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for the invitation. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.